0: Get started. Welcome. Glad you're here. We have plenty of uh, dessert left. If anybody wants some seconds, some good shots of cake. Today, <clears throat> we're picking up Leviticus 13. Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14 are one unit. So last week we saw Leviticus. Uh, 11 and 12 and 12 is the shortest chapter in the book and 13 is one of the longer ones and remember where we are so keep in mind overview book of leviticus israel gets this thing called the tabernacle god gives them this this mobile temple presence this mini mount sinai that's going to be built right in the center of their camp and it's going to follow them or they're they're going to wherever they go, Mount Sinai is going to be right there in their midst. That's the idea behind the tabernacle. And as part of that, a holy God dwelling amidst his people, God is instilling in them patterns and customs and procedures in order to preserve the ritual holiness of him dwelling there, or ritual cleanliness. And so the focus on Leviticus, the first part of the book, five chapters or so was about the, the the sacrifices and what kinds of sacrifices can be offered in the very center of the people of Israel. It was all about which animals and which which animals can and which animals can't. And then it kind of broadened out a little bit when we got into the dietary laws about now now the, the sacrificial question is over. Now let's look at the dietary question and, and the usage question, which animals can and can't be used. And we think of that as like why so much focus on animals, but this is an agrarian society. Animals were their dollar bills. Animals were their bank accounts. Animals were their cars, their tractors. They were all about animals. So when we look at the biblical laws and we think they're weird because they have so much, you know, who cares about oxen and goats and clean and unclean and all that. We have to remember, we have to realize that's the voice of a modern 21st century North American reading a 2nd millennium B.C. ancient Near East text. And so we have to really keep that in mind, otherwise we'll end up going to the Bible doing the chief heresy of modern evangelicalism, which is, what does this say to me? What is God teaching me in this? And how does this relate to my life? Instead of doing how we should do, which is the exact opposite, how does my life fit into what God's doing? How does my life fit into the grand narrative of Scripture? How does my setting compare to the setting into which God gave His word? So it's a subtle uh, shift in focus, but it makes all the difference in the world between biblical theology and folk theology. And so what we want to do is biblical theology. We want to come to the text as students and as, as explorers and as, as tourists, as people looking around, as people digging around and, and poking into different corners and finding out what all the treasures are hidden in this text. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. When it is vastly different to our culture, it's hard. When the cultural chasm to be spanned is really wide and really deep, then it takes a much sturdier bridge to get over. If it's, if it's really close, or really similar, then sometimes it's just a quick hop over and we can be in the middle of the world and we can see how it relates. But on issues of things like Leviticus, it's a bigger chasm to cross. We're not an agrarian society, we're not a pre-industrial society, and we're on the other side of the new covenant. And that's the biggest deal, is we have to look to Leviticus through the lens of the cross through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the new covenant that was inaugurated at Pentecost. And that's the covenant into which we live. And in that covenant, the laws of Leviticus are not our primary binding external rule of life. The laws of Leviticus, for us rather, illuminate the character of God who gave them to the people under that first covenant. So we have to do more work, which is why we, we do this Bible study. It's why we go through week by week and we, we, we slowly go through the text. Our goal is not to read through the Bible in a year, not we'll to read through the Bible in two years. At the rate we're going, about 50 years from now, we'll be done, uh, and that's okay, because we never stop being a student of scripture. But rather it's to slow down and look and say, how, how, do I, how can I step back into this world and see the principles at work and see the reflection of the God who gave this covenant to these people. So we're into now, so this section, Leviticus 11 through 15, is all about cleanliness and purity. Cleanliness and purity. And all of that relates to the concept that God's trying to ingrain through these characteristics of holiness. So. Cleanliness is next to godliness, yes. In some sense, that's true. God wants his people to be clean, but not clean in the sense of just washing and scrubbing. Because there's things that make someone unclean that we look at in these that they're like, well, that's actually, there's nothing unhygienic about that. And then there are things that are considered clean that we're like, how is that clean? That doesn't seem hygienic at all. Or or if, if hygiene is the purpose, then these laws seem kind of odd. And, and it's all about, we have to all keep in mind that the focus is on ritual cleanliness, Levitical cleanliness, not uh, modern germ theory cleanliness. Right? It's, it's, it's all in the context of the ritual. And we, as a lot of us who are Protestants, uh, kind of bristle at the word ritual. You know, we see a ritual and we think dead, dry, you know, if you're raised a Catholic, church or went to Catholic school, you don't want anything to do with ritual because you have too much of it, we think of ritual as something bad, but it's, it's not necessarily dead ritual, hollow ritual, or hypocritical ritual is what scripture denounces, not ritual itself, and so we want to keep that in mind. The value of ritual is in what it teaches through the subconscious. Not necessarily where you can connect the dots uh, intellectually and go, oh, this makes sense because this equals this. And so by doing this, I'm really doing this. It's a deeper level than that. There can be some of those uh, examples, but more, it's a it's a whole way of life. It's, it's you know, when, when churches that have rituals, when they do incense, if you've been in a church that has incense, the incense has a practical purpose, especially in the ancient world. It covered the smell of things, you know, before there was... Axe body spray and a Pantene Pro-V for your hair. Before that, people stank. And so, especially when animals got involved, if you've been to a farm or a slaughterhouse, it stinks. So the idea of incense was something that had hygienic and practical purpose, but that wasn't the reason that it was given. The reason was because the incense was symbolic of the prayers of God's people rising up to His throne directly. And that's why cultures all over the world, every culture in, in existence, has some form of connection between smoke or flame or incense rising and prayers to their deity. So there's a deeper thing going on at the subconscious level with these rituals. And so some of them are really apparent, some of them are really weird. These rituals involving cleansing are very strange. But we don't have to figure out the exact intellectual. Uh, logical connection with every ritual to every act, to understand that by doing these as a society, it was teaching people subconscious uh, lessons about who God was and who he wants them to be. So this is especially true when it comes to issues of things like holiness and cleanness and uncleanness. And we saw last week how it's not always a logical connection. You know, if a, if a rat or a mouse or a lizard gets into your... Uh, your cooking pot and dies because it can't get out then everything in the pot is is unclean and the pot itself if it's clay has to be destroyed if it's metal has to be scoured and rinsed but everything in, in that is unclean but if that same rat or mouse or lizard or whatever falls into a cistern and dies because it can't get out that cistern doesn't become unclean and we saw symbolically how because the cistern is the source of water and water is the thing that cleanses and so God was putting in a little mini lesson or or concept in there that the source of cleanliness will always be stronger than that which defiles, and a cooking pot or a vessel wasn't a source of cleanliness, but a cistern or a spring was. And so that concept helps us to see that these ritual laws aren't about logically connecting what makes something clean and what makes something unclean. Because sometimes it doesn't logically follow, but it ritually follows, or it theologically because there's something in there that God is doing. So in chapters 13 and 14 now, we've moved from like uh, cleanliness of animals, and then we've looked at the period, the, the idea of um, human uncleanness, and we've looked at the childbirth, and, uh, and the whole idea of between when things that, things that reflect or connote or that symbolize death are what makes people unclean, because God at the center of those people is to be a God of life. And life not death is what he is emphasizing it's the whole point the whole thing about death is within the human sphere it is the result of sin sin is what uh, death is what sin brought into the human experience back in genesis and we're reading part of the five books that comprise one work the one is the torah so there are themes that echo all the way back to genesis and we saw that even the even the order of things that are being dealt with in leviticus loosely follow the order of the elements of creation in genesis so then when human when when sin entered into the picture and god cast humanity from the garden made them dwell outside his presence cast them out from his camp of eden he covered them with skins and so it's no surprise then that the next issue that's going to be addressed is things that have to do with cleanliness and uncleanness and holiness and impurity in the realm of skins, human skin and animal skins that humans use or wear, such as leather garments. So that that becomes the focus of this chapter, following that Genesis theme. And in this, this is a long chapter, so I'm going to read through a big chunk of it just to get the feel of it, and then we're going to talk about a few things now. Um, I know you're excited because you, you get to eat a meal while talking about oozing skin diseases. And that's what everybody wants to do when they go for their lunch break on Tuesday. So just wait till we get to the bodily discharges in a few weeks because that'll be really fun. and You can invite everybody here. But bear with it. If you get a little queasy, uh, take it up with God because it's in his word. Verse chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a bright spot on his skin that may become an infectious skin disease he must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest now just if you're a, a, a highlighter or an underliner that in the NIV that phrase infectious skin disease is sort of all one word in hebrew sarah and it's the word that gets translated in the older versions, like King James and others, as leprosy. But it's really important to note this at the front. This is not talking about what we think of when we think of leprosy. When the Bible was translated into Greek, because of what we're going to see in this passage, the Greek translators chose the word lepra or a form of it, to, to translate this skin disease. And that later in English was connected with what we know of as this disease today called Hansen's disease which is what we call leprosy and that's the thing where because of the skin uh, the nerves deadening in the extremities there's injury and it goes unnoticed and so like fingertips fall off or noses rot off or what you know that idea of leprosy when we think of like a leopard's colony or something like that, that really horrible disease That's not what this is necessarily talking about. That may possibly be what this is talking about, but that disease that we think of as leprosy, there's no evidence of that in the ancient world until like the third century, you know, long after this, at least, in this area of the world. So that's one of those things where English and Bible translations have kind of given us a uh, a misunderstanding of what Scripture's talking about. Because none of the symptoms that are gonna be listed in this section really symptoms of the disease known as Hanson's disease. So it's something that we need to kind of just do your best to divorce in your mind the concept of leprosy and people's arms and stuff falling off and and what scripture is talking about. Because it's, it's, it's not necessarily the same thing. They're only tangentially related if at all. This is more like things like psoriasis or eczema, or you know some of those uh, the tick with uh, the tic- the, tili- the thing Michael Jackson you know when your skin starts to turn uh, white when it's dark or vice like this is what that's talking about those kind of skin things. So when someone has this 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 skin disease, he must be brought to Aaron, one of his sons, who's a priest. Verse three: the priest uh, is to examine the sore on the skin. The hair in the sore is turned white, and the sore appears to be more than skin deep. It's an infectious skin disease. It's, it's, it's this thing. When the priest examines him, he should pronounce him ceremonially unclean. If the spot on his skin is white but does not appear to be more than skin deep, and the hair in it is not turned white, the priest is to put the affected person in isolation for seven days, one week. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him. If he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he's to keep him isolated for another seven days. So if it hasn't spread, seven more days of quarantine. It's still there, but it hasn't spread, seven more days of quarantine. On the seventh day, the priest is examined him again. If the sore is faded and has not spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean, it's only a rash. The man must wash his clothes and he will be clean. If the rash does spread in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest to be pronounced clean, he must appear before the priest again priest is to examine him If the rash is spread on the skin he should pronounce him unclean it is an infectious disease it is this so the concept is when one is suspected of having this this whatever impurity one sees like if it's a sword if it's a rash it's in, and they're going to give more examples then the priest is to look for certain things and this is where the priests are to be examiners medical examiners now the priests aren't doctors in this whole section the priests are not told any way to remove or get rid of the disease there's no prescription for healing or for curing because that's not the priest's job the priest is not the medicine man the priest is not the healer god is the healer all right so there's not in this case the priest's job isn't to heal it is to examine and to verify and to figure out what this person has and does the thing that this person has does that thing uh violate or jeopardize the ritual cleanliness of the camp in which the person is living. And if it does or if it's suspected that it does the person is to be isolated for seven days, move, move out of the camp and see what happens. If it spreads, then the person is ritually unclean. And, they, they, and, and we'll talk about what needs to happen. If it doesn't spread, if it, if it stays how it is, give it another week. Two weeks, if there's you know something, if it's like a rash, some, you know the things that we're all used to, then it, if it gets better, then they can be left back in. So this is the priest's role, it's examining. But it's examining for ritual purity, not moral standing. There's nothing about if somebody has this, it's because they're a sinner. If it has this, it's because it's God's judgment on it. There's no, there's no connotation of that in this text. This is just strictly forensic examination. What is the state of this person? with a mind to our corporate holiness. Individual impurity can affect corporate purity. And that is a lesson that's hammered home throughout this chapter and other chapters in the Torah, where God is ingraining into his people. It's not just about you and me, individual and God. It's about y'all and me, community and God. And so part of community means keeping an eye out for ourselves and for one another so that we're maintaining this thing called corporate holiness, corporate purity. And that in and of itself has strong theological implications in the New Testament when it, excuse me, when it does start talking about corporate sin and guilt and things that do defile a person. And when Paul will tell the Corinthians uh, expel the wicked from among you and cite the Torah and the idea of maintaining community standards of holiness. And so that'll come into play much, much later, but the emphasis right now is that this, this is a communal thing. But here's how we see that it's not illogical. If you have any blemish, then you're out of here. This is, this, is, this is where we see that this is not saying, oh, you got bad acne? you're out of here. You know, God doesn't mean, oh, you, oh, you're a different color, your skin's lighter, you're out of here. Your skin's darker, you're out of here. It's not about that, this is about things, this, this thing called sarahat, this infectious disease, this thing that has the appearance of death, this thing that takes healthy black hair, and remember, this is ancient Hebrew Near East, everyone was black haired back then, they didn't have blondes and redheads, or, uh, so if you had black hair, that was healthy hair. If there was an infection or there was something under the skin, the hair, the spot of it would turn white, it would turn brittle, and that would be the sign of an infection. So that's what it's talking about with the hair, the change of color. But check this out. we start in verse 9. When anyone has an infectious disease, he must be brought to the priest. The priest is to examine him. If there's a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and if there is raw flesh, and this raw mm-hmm. is a good translation because it means like, raw flesh, like living flesh, like possibly bleeding or you know how pop blister blisters just very raw. Um, if there's raw flesh in the swelling, it's a chronic skin disease and the priest will pronounce him unclean. He's not to put him in isolation because he's already unclean. Verse 12. if the disease breaks out all over his skin and so far as the priest can see it covers all the skin of the infected person from head to foot, the priesthood to examine him and if the disease has covered his whole body he shall pronounce that person clean that's weird you would expect that would be the most unclean if it's all this thing then that would be unclean but it says the to pronounce him clean since it has all turned white he is clean but whenever raw flesh appears on him he will be unclean in other words if there's spots where it's not then he'll be unclean when the priest sees the raw flesh, he'll pronounce him unclean. The raw flesh is unclean, he has an infectious disease. Should the raw flesh change and turn white, he must go to the priest. The priest is to examine him. If the swords have turned white, the priest shall pronounce the infected person clean. Then he will be clean. So the idea from this, there, and there's, there's a lot of theories and ways to think about it, but the thing that jumps out to me is, this is instilling in Israel that concept of not mixing things. Later, the laws will be things like don't wear two types of garments, don't sow two types of seed into your field, uh, you know, don't raise two types of crops on the same plot of land, don't try to interbreed two types of different animals, don't try to. There will be this this law on keeping things separate and in their categories. So this, so when a skin disease, when this sarah thing happens, if it affects parts of a person, then they have become ceremonially unclean, because there's not that integrity, there's not that wholeness. But it's not about the disease itself, because if their whole body is covered with it, like say of of, of the or however you pronounce it, where the person starts to turn white, they have dark skin, they start to turn white, and over the years that spreads, and then eventually they completely turn white. Um, Or if it's a certain type of skin disease, I've seen one when I was in the Philippines as a kid, and it it looked like scales, skin looked like fish scales. I mean, it was really, it was in a trash village and it was really, it was kind of jarring when I first saw it, but, but, but it, was, it wasn't like a piece of it. It was like head to toe. It was like this whole, it's like he had scales. It was so weird looking. But it's like, that's the idea of this, is if it covers the whole body, then that state of integrity looks like it has been restored. In other words, even if it's covered with this thing, it's completely that thing. So there's that wholeness and integrity once again. It's the mixing, it's the interchanging, it's the thing that kind of remind uh, or bring to mind the concept of decay and death, that that connotes the idea of uncleanness. So it's really strange, it's one of those, it's just tucked away in the middle of chapter 13 and you can skim it and you're reading it and you're, oh, it's unclean if it's this, unclean if it's this, oh, everything, every blemish makes you unclean. Not necessarily. It's the type and the nature of it. And, and to me it's really interesting because it shows it, that the concern in this section is not about who's got what diseases or who's got what ailment or whatever, but it's, it's undermining or under, undergirding that concept of integrity and wholeness. So if you have this, this skin disease, this scale disease, but it covers everything equally, then that, then, then you're not unclean, you're clean. So do with it what you will, but it's a very odd, it's a very just it's a weird thing. It's one of these cases where the laws fly in the face of what we would think of as making logical sense if we were examining this from a medical standpoint or a quarantine standpoint or an infection standpoint. But it shows us that that's not what this chapter is about. God is not just preserving now. Do the do the rituals that take place in this help in stopping outbreaks of things like plague or, or Infectious disease? Sure. Absolutely. Quarantining someone who's sick. If you got chickenpox, you quarantine them for a week or two weeks. That's helpful in keeping the chickenpox from spreading to the other people. So that just makes basic sense. But that's not the purpose necessarily of these passages. Remember, this is all in the context of how to be God's holy people living with God right there in their midst and not jeopardizing that holy, impure uh, boundary. So, let me go on and, and, and buzz through the rest of these and then we'll wrap it up. So, it goes on after that. It says, uh, if someone has a boil on his skin, and it heals. And the place where the boil heals, a uh, place where the boil has a white swelling or a reddish spot appears, he must present himself to the priest. The priest is to examine it. If it appears to be more than skin deep, the hair in has turned white, the priest should pronounce him unclean. It's an infectious skin disease that is broken out from the boil was. When the priest examines it, there is no white hair in it and, it, and it is not more than skin deep, and it's faded, then the priest is to put him in isolation for seven days. Safekeeping was quarantine. If it's spreading in the skin, the priest should pronounce him unclean because it's infectious. But if the spot is unchanged, it's not spreading, it's only a scar from the boil, and the priest should pronounce him clean. So you can have scars, you can have spots, you can have blemishes. And it's, it's okay. It's this thing that God is actually looking at in, in order to prevent. When someone has a burn on his skin, a reddish or white spot appears, and the raw flesh of the burn, the priest examines the spot. If the hair in it has turned white and appears to be more than skin deep, it's an infectious disease. It's broken out of the burn. You know, the burns get infected, and these various diseases happen. heaven. The priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's an infectious skin disease. But if the priest examines him, there's no white hair in the spot, and it's not more than skin deep, and it's faded, then the priest has put him in isolation for seven days, on the seventh day, the priest is to examine it. If it's spreading in the skin, the priest will pronounce him unclean. It's an infectious skin disease. If, however, the spot is unchanged and not spreading in the skin but is faded, it's a swelling from the burn. The priest will pronounce him clean. It's only a scar from the burn. If the man or woman has a sore on the head or on the chin, the priest is to examine the sore. If it appears to be more than skin deep and the hair is yellow and thin, the priest will pronounce him unclean. It's an itch. It's an infectious disease of the head or the chin. But if, when the priest examines this kind of sword, it does not seem to be more than skin deep, and there's no black hair in it, then the priest is to put the infected person in isolation for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the sword. And if the itch is not spread and there's no yellow hair in it, and it does not appear to be more than skin deep, he's to uh, be shaved except for the diseased area, so he can get a good look and you know, shave around it and, it, and keep it on this thing. And the priest is to keep him in isolation another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the itch, if it's not spread in the skin and appears to be no more than skin deep, the priest will pronounce him clean. And then he must wash his clothes and he'll be clean. But if the itch does, does spread in the skin after he's pronounced clean, the priest is to examine him. If the itch is spread in the skin, the priest does not need to look for yellow hair, the person's unclean. If, however, in his judgment it's unchanged and the black hair is grown in it and the itch is healed, he's clean, the priest will pronounce him clean. When a man or woman has white spots on the skin, the priest is to examine them. If the spots are dull, white, it's a harmless rash uh, that's broken out on the skin. The person's clean. This is a great verse. You should put on your uh, greeting cards. When a man has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. Those of you that are bald or balding, rejoice. You're clean. If he's lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he's clean. So receding hairline, no big deal, you're still clean. But if he has reddish-white sore in the bald head or forehead, it's an infectious disease breaking out on his head or forehead. The priest needs to examine him. To and if the swollen sore on his head or forehead is reddish-white, like an infectious skin disease, the man is diseased and is unclean, the priest will pronounce him unclean because of the sore on his head. Here's what you do, the whole unclean thing. The person with such an infectious disease, and this covers all the previous ones, so the person with this, sarah, must wear torn clothes let his hair be unkempt cover the lower part of his face and cry out unclean unclean or impure impure as long as he has the infection he remains unclean he must live alone outside the camp now does that mean he must live alone like an actual hermit or he must live alone meaning not within the camp it's it's more likely the second because there were later what would be known as leper colonies where people would live not alone but but relatively speaking, alone outside the cave. So it's it's not like saying you have to go live as a hermit and you're know you know, you're isolated and solitary and But the point is, this last verse, and we'll finish with this and think about it next week. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt or, or, or messy, and cover the lower part of the face and cry out unclean. Those were the things other than the crying out unclean. The covering of the face, the unkempt hair, and the tearing of the clothes those are the rituals you do when there's a death. Those are mourning rituals. Those are what you do when you have come in contact or there is a corpse, when someone has died. Hair's butt down, unkempt, face is covered, you're in mourning, clothes are torn. This is equating, and this is the key how we see what this, this whole thing of, a, of an infectious skin disease, a Sara'a, whatever it is, whatever it may have been medically theologically and ritually, it is the presence of death within a living person. And that's like the ultimate no-no in terms of cleanness and uncleanness, and holiness and purity. Whole point of it is those two things should not overlap. Unclean and clean should not mix. Holy and common should not mix. So when you have a living person and there's this, this vestige of death that's spreading in them, then that's like the ultimate theological or symbolic embodiment of what god is saying holiness is not to be it's not to be this amalgamation of clean and unclean pure and impure. there's to be the separation there's to be the integrity and so the the ritual the, the aspect of uncleanness that's adopted when it's found when it's seen when it's proven after two weeks of quarantine is th- this is this is death or symbolic of death just like a dead animal a dead corpse defiles a person with this living death on them defiles does it mean god hates animals that are unclean we already said no god doesn't hate pigs he doesn't hate shrimp does it mean god hates a person that has leprosy no god doesn't hate the person we'll read about people later in scripture like Naaman the syria who had leprosy or some form of this thing and god still loved and chose to heal Does it say it's irreversible? No. It doesn't say anything about whether it can be healed or not. And so the hope for people that would have this would be to cry out for God to heal them, that they could be restored back into the community. And most of these skin diseases were not terminal long term. They were able to be healed. And and if so, then the person would be brought back in. But this also lets us know the seriousness with which this clean unclean barrier is being put in place in the people of israel and it makes it all the more scandalous when we read in the new testament jesus going up to people that have these diseases and touching them and just like the the spring and the cistern and the animal that falls in it the spring makes it clean doesn't get defiled jesus touching the leper transmits his holiness to the person the person is cleansed of their leprosy because his holiness goes that way rather than being defiled by it. Why? Because he is the spring. He's the spring of living life. But we are 90 seconds over, so I'm going to be mindful of your time. Have a great week. Come back next week. We'll pick it up in the next section.